If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Thanks for joining us on this uh, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, second one. And uh, boy, it's great to see uh, it's great to see people embracing this. And, um, y- you know, y- you don't have to. All you have to do is listen. Just listen to the stories and hear what's going on and just be aware. Just be aware. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to. You know, move the planet, change the world. Uh, you just have to listen and be aware. You know, I, 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 I really didn't discover indigenous art. Well, I didn't until, uh, I saw the work of Tom Wilson and I'm obviously a big Tom Wilson fan, junk house fan, what have you. And, um, and, and more so my wife. Oh man, look at we got. And so we're fortunate to have two of his paddles, uh, at our place hanging, uh, prominently and, uh, and admire all the time so uh it's amazing when you learn more about this and 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 see the influence and and even what tom has done before he even realized his what his background is or was uh so uh a collection of indigenous art is running currently at the beckett fine art gallery on lock street and it's there until october 15th joining us now thomas beckett is with us beckett fine art 196 lock street south in hamilton and here now tom thanks for the time i hope you're doing well Yes, wonderful to be with you, Scott. Uh, tell us again about Beckett Fine Art. Yeah, uh, Beckett Fine Art started in Hamilton by my father in 1966, and I worked with him the last 14 years he was there and went on to Toronto and Yorkville for 14 years. And I've returned back to Hamilton just two years ago, and it's, uh, it's wonderful to be back home in Hamilton. What was it like to make that transition, considering what we're all going through in the last two and a half years? Or was that the reason? Yeah, it, it, was, it was a bizarre first two years because I opened during COVID. And, uh, you know, I got to know all my clients coming in uh, from, their, from their eyeballs up sort of thing. So uh, it, it, it's been a warm welcoming. Uh, business has been very good. Uh, it brought, you know, a lot of people weren't able to travel, so... They were looking at their homes and their offices and looking at their own collections and decided, you know, it was time to add or subtract things. So I was able to help them with all those things. Is there a growing interest in Indigenous art? Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, You know, with all the new education that we've all been getting with the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which is a very important day to honour, everyone's learning more. Everyone's uh, more open to uh, learning more. And we've been involved with Indigenous artists since 1966. Um, So I've had a a huge, you know, honour and uh, love for their work and appreciation for their work and, and the artists and the families that I've worked with. 
my father used to take me around as a young boy and we'd go into different artist studios. So that planted a seed and it's mm-hmm. carried on until this day. And more interest in just the last few years since, well, as you said, we've discovered what we've discovered. Yeah, definitely more interest. But there's been uh, uh, an interest among art collectors for many years. Uh, Arthur Schilling is one of the top uh, Indigenous artists we work with. He's uh, Ojibwe from the Rama Reserve near Orillia, and we've been working with him since 1975. And, and then I've been working with Tom Wilson just the last two years at the gallery since I've opened up here, and that's been exciting because I followed Tom as a musician while I was living in Hamilton. Mm. And, uh, you know, and now we're working professionally, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to help him with his art and uh, get his artwork out there into public galleries and, you know, to a wider audience. So it's been exciting. What's it like putting this uh, exhibit together, both historic and contemporary? Um, Sorry to sound so naive. Can you see differences? Can you see progressions, messages the same? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The the younger contemporary artists are dealing with, you know, things that we're all dealing with today. Um, So uh, more historical artists, um, Norvell Morriso and, and Arthur Schilling, of Canadian art, anyway, uh, Indigenous art. They're, they were dealing with, you know, something in the past a little bit, life in their world in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And uh, the youngest artist to the gallery is Kyle Jodick, and he's from uh, Six Nations in Caledonia area. And he, I started following his work on Instagram a few years ago, and he was a graffiti artist and mural artist here in Hamilton and now he's doing paintings and I'm representing him and we've teamed up and and he's doing some fantastic work so his work has been popping off the wall because his price point is is much lower uh, just because of the young up-and-coming artists but very exciting to see the new progression of sort of a mix of graffiti and painting. Talk a little bit about that, because that's fascinating, because sometimes you see some incredible work on on walls. Sometimes others look at it and just, and many look at it and just see vandalism. So talk about that progression from graffiti art to putting it onto a canvas. Yeah, uh, Kyle was, uh, you know, a teenage graffiti artist uh, involved with music and DJing. And as he, you know, grew older and matured, he, he uh, there was a lot of interest in that work, but he ended up getting hired to do uh, commissioned murals. So putting the, the indigenous stories that he's uh, portraying, each, each mural portrays a particular Indian story legend and uh he's he's been working on that on a huge scale so with his spray paints and other paints that he uses and materials and been commissioned all over the city he's working on a a large commission right now for mcmaster university and various other corporate uh uh, companies are, are contacting us with interest of him doing murals on there corporate walls and and that sort of thing so um yeah so the the paintings you know that i've been selling in in the gallery are sort of you know 24 by 30 and 12 by 16 so 
they're they're more for home size uh, right. artworks. So, what will we see at this at this uh, at this exhibit until October fifteenth? Yeah, you see a beautiful uh, grouping of various styles, various uh, mediums, uh, graphite, oil paintings. Uh, Tom Wilson's got one paddle here and a large fish painting that's more of a three-dimensional piece. Um, I've got a silk screen uh, print by Norvell Morisot and some... Uh, two beautiful uh, silkscreen serographs by West Coast uh, Indigenous artist David Neal, who does some extraordinary work. And and then I had some beautiful uh, carvings by David General, Madoc Marble. David was the chief uh, at Six Nations Reserve for about six years, and but we've been showing his work for 30 years. He's 72 years old now and hmm. has work in the McMichael and uh, a lot of the public galleries. So he just does some beautiful sculpture uh, as well as paintings and prints. The Beckett Fine Art Gallery on Lock Street currently hosting an exhibit of historic and contemporary indigenous art, and it runs until October 15th. Thomas Beckett with us. Beckett Fine Art, 196 Lock Street South in Hamilton. Tom, thank you for the time. Good luck. Appreciate it. Nice speaking with you. I found this fascinating. Uh, not so much because of how many Canadians support this now, but the fact that Canadians from coast to coast, like usually, you know, on pick any issue. The West feels this way. The East feels that way. Uh, the left feels this way. The right feels that way. Like, you know, there's, n- there's, no- there's never a consensus on anything, which is great. We live in a democracy. So... What amazes me is that, and roughly it's uh, 72% of respondents, and, and we're going to bring on Leger here in a sec, um, 72% of respondents are more aware uh, and have an understanding of truth and reconciliation. I'm paraphrasing their question. Um, and but, but across the provinces, it's pretty much the same, give or take a bit. And even, um, you know, whether uh, demographics, age, young or old, I find that fascinating. And as they point out, uh, so three quarters of their population agrees on something. Name another issue where that happens. How ironic is that? Let's bring in Dave Schultz, Executive Vice President of Leger, and with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you for having me here. Uh, I, I'm sure you heard the preamble. Uh, what stands out to me is it's the same everywhere, it appears. Am I missing something? Well, yes and no. So you're talking about awareness. And uh, we wanted to, this is a bit of a scorecard. We wanted to do a report card on where Canadians were at. Uh, we're seven years into uh, the Truth and Reconciliation report that was presented. And you're correct in that generally across the country, awareness has increased uh, when it comes to the history of Indigenous peoples in Canada. 30% said they are much more aware compared to four or five years ago. 42% said they're a little more aware. So that's the good news. In general, across Canada, we're, we're getting this level of awareness increase. Mm-hmm. But when you start asking Canadians questions around how much progress has been made with the report, there's where it starts to change a little bit. Yeah. Um, uh, 15% of Canadians feel that a lot of progress has been made. Uh, 50% say moderate. Uh, we still have 17% who are saying, I don't know if any progress has been made. Um, to this report. And there, then you start to see some of the nuances 
come out. So, you know, 15% say a lot of progress are across Canada. Um, that would be 22% in Manitoba or Saskatchewan compared to 9% in Quebec. So we do start to see some of those differences, uh, regional differences come into play. Um, the good news, and let me build on your initial feed about all people agreeing on this, 72% of Canadians are more aware and 72% of Canadians say, I'm much more understanding of why reconciliation is important for Indigenous peoples in Canada as a whole. So we're starting to get awareness, not just awareness, but an understanding coming into why this is, why do we have, uh, you know, why is today uh, a day for listening and uh, learning? Um, Canadians are starting to understand that a little bit more. And, you know, and again, obviously, it's a very complex issue, and I'm oversimplifying it at the beginning, but as you broke it down, um, you know, even defining progress, what's progress? Yeah. You know, to say those numbers that you just said where, you know what, people are at least even aware of this. I don't know what it was 10 years ago, um, but some may, see, some may say, oh, my goodness, finally, after however many years, that's progress. Then, obviously, once the door is open and the discussions begin – how fast, how far do you move? That's sort of another definition of progress. Well, and even, even what attracts your attention, because we asked, we gave people a list of potential possibilities. We said, what is the specific issue or situation that most captures your attention when it comes to reconciliation? And the number one issue was the poor socioeconomic, socioeconomic situation for many Indigenous people. Yeah. Uh, the second most one was lack of drinking water. Um, and third was the issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women and children. Uh, and then we start talking about it, it, residential schools. So people are a little bit all over the map in terms of, I mean, obviously all of these are important issues, um, but we can't say that we have one issue that really Canadians have picked up on as the most important one going forward right now. Perhaps, and this is again another naive state and, uh, statement, but um, a lot for Canadians to digest at once. It, it really is, although it's been seven years of at yeah. once. And, and yeah. I think yeah. a lot has happened in that time. And a lot has happened in the last two years, um, especially around residential schools. Yeah. Um, you know, to me, I think to me, I think that was a real turning point here. Dave, do you believe that? I, I believe that as well. And I think that's where we're uh, I really wish we had done this poll uh, just before the first uh, graves were discovered because hmm. there's been a lot of change in Canadians' attitudes and opinions. My sense of it since then, but I don't have the numbers to back that up. Um, let's go to other issues. Uh, one thing, as I said off the top, isn't it ironic that this is one thing that three-quarters of, Can of Canadians at least appear to agree on? Because there isn't much in the world. It's a very divisive uh, world we live in. It's amazing. And of all things, it's and it's the indigenous issues that we're agreeing on, where we didn't even talk about that at one time. No, and not even just that, but uh, half of Canadians, and this is again spread across the country, are frustrated that the reconciliation reconciliation process is moving slowly. Yeah. So it so normally we would again you'd say we'd have regional disparity, and, and one part of the country would be thinking, no, we're moving great mm. and quick and fast, and. The other country, part of the country would say, no, we're moving too slow. In general, we're fairly, I mean, there's a few ups and downs, but we're fairly consistent in our approach across the country on this. And the same thing when it comes to the Pope's visit. 
um, hope coming to Canada and the apology. We asked a few people to believe that's a meaningful step towards reconciliation. Mm. And, and again, 51% of Canadians, highest in Alberta at 59 uh, and lowest in Manitoba at 47, but really fairly consistent results across the country. And, you know, it, it's uh, the same debate uh, about a stat holiday, whether it should be considered a stat holiday, whether we should be all off and, and, and observing that way, whether everybody should be working and us talking about it or, you know, I, I, I was mentioning earlier about it, talking about it at my kid's school today. So what about it being a statutory holiday? Well, we didn't ask that specific question because we thought it best to uh, stick to more of the issues around it. Um, we Will you get ask, to that question? Will you get to that question? Uh, possibly next year. I think it's a little too, or maybe we look backwards at this one right. is where we're at. We did ask, because I, I think this ties into this, um, what, are, what is really slowing down reconciliation efforts? And um, 63% of Canadians feel it's the federal government. 58% feel it's the provincial government. And the decision around having today off, uh, it's a federal day off, not provincial uh, mm-hmm. mandated day off. So some of that could be reflected within that. But it's still we're still hearing that you know, in a large part, um, government is slowing us down on how to actually move through the challenges of reconciliation. Is it something you can move through that fast because there's just so many different opinions? Well, that's well. And even amongst one of the statements we asked is to what degree do you think the lack of agreement among indigenous peoples in Canada is a challenge to moving forward? And 64 percent of Canadians felt that. Now, again, these are not 64 percent of indigenous peoples. This is 64 percent of Canadians feel that the lack of agreement among indigenous people is is part of the, this issue of how we're not able to move faster because we're having to decide what is that next step to move forward. Uh, that is an interesting part of the discussion. And of course, uh, moving forward, um, everybody's going to, to, to have to have a seat at the table. As you look at uh, where, where do you think this is? If you're sitting at, say, 72% now, any predictions on what this is going to do? Even I mean, this is only the second Truth and Reconciliation Day. I know uh, the, the document's been around for seven years, but then even, you know, the discovery at the, at the residential schools, it's amazing how quickly it has progressed. So I'm, a, I'm also a communicator as well as a researcher. And the main, the first thing you have to do is to get people aware of an issue before you can start moving towards meaningful change. Yeah. And the fact that we now have 72% of Canadians, and as you said, across the country, um, that are more aware of the history of Indigenous people and what that means, that's a, that's a great step towards now let's start having seeing some real change happen um, and let's start addressing uh, some of those um, 94 recommendations in the report. A new poll from Leger shows the vast majority of Canadians support reconciliation. Uh, Dave Schultz with his ex- executive VP of Leger. Fascinating discussion, Dave. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks. You too. All right. Uh, let's head down south, see what's going on, and get an update. Hurricane Ian. Man, we have seen the images. Unbelievable. The amount of water that has come inland uh, from the sea and uh, devastated anything in its path. 
Uh, obviously, uh, the shots that we are seeing, the water uh, that has come inland from the the, the massive surges uh, caused by the wind and such. And what's very bizarre about this uh, about this storm, I mean, it comes in off the Gulf Coast, which normally the Gulf Coast doesn't get hit as hard, or and I think historically haven't been hit as hard. Uh, but this storm came across the Gulf, uh, obviously hitting uh, the Gulf side, then going across the peninsula and then going up uh hitting water again and then going up the atlantic coast let's bring in reggie Giacchini, a correspondent for global news reggie uh glad to have you here where are you exactly what is it like where you are yeah apologies cell phone service is still really spotty across uh, parts of south florida we actually are just leaving the fort myers area and when you were talking earlier about just that sheer power of water being able to witness it and see it up, up front uh and firsthand really is remarkable because we could see, um, you know, just centimeters away from our faces, boats and yachts that had been thrown, uh, you know, 30 and 40 meters away from the shoreline and were pancaked on top of each other with pieces of concrete from the walkways to get to those boats sitting right next to them. It is an absolute mess, and it really is going to be a years-long process to clean this up. Give us an idea how large uh, of an area has been devastated here around that Gulf Coast. Well, I mean, look, there was damage when we were in Sarasota earlier in the week to some of the buildings. There were trees down. Uh, you know, we went about a half an hour south down to South Venice and we saw the roofs taken off of homes. We drove about another hour south of that uh, earlier today to Fort Myers, where it has been completely devastated. Parts of Naples has been devastated. Parts of the Florida Keys uh, found themselves with damage. So, I mean, these are thousands of kilometers uh, of, of coastline that are now finding themselves in a position of needing to be rebuilt. And in the case of Fort Myers Beach, it could be upwards of 80% of that beach needing to be rebuilt. You know, insurance companies are putting best guesses right now from coast to coast across the state, right up towards the Georgia border. There could be upwards of $50 billion of damages. Uh, Any news, injury, death updates on any of that? So the numbers are fluid and, uh, and, and, you know, it's difficult to tell because there are still so many people that are unreachable because communication is still out. So it's unclear if people who haven't been able to get in contact with someone, if it's because they didn't make it or it's because they simply don't have uh, a reach because there's no cell phone service. Best guesses right now, at least from local officials, are in and around 20. But given the fact that Governor DeSantis has called this a 500-year storm, there is a real possibility here that that death toll could continue to rise, especially since we saw such devastating rainfalls extend further east in through uh, Orlando and storm surge uh, became problematic in towards the Jacksonville and Daytona area. This really was an entire state that took a hit from this storm. Yeah, as I said earlier, bizarre that it comes in on the Gulf side, goes across the panhandle and right out the other side. What's it doing now? What's the progress of this storm? Well, yeah, so look, it went out over the Atlantic. We knew that there was a chance that it was going to strengthen, and it did strengthen back into a Category 1 hurricane late yesterday. What did it do? It slammed into the coastline of South Carolina just over an hour ago with hurricane-force winds, bringing it with it torrential rains and a risk for storm surge along coastal South Carolina. Both Carolinas and Virginia remain under a state of emergency because of the real risk of rain uh, and ongoing storm surge along with the winds. Uh, you know, unclear what the storm tally is going to do, at least when it comes to damages, because it is still ongoing. But at the end of the day, when you have a storm that was already one of the strongest storms to not just hit Florida, but the entire United States, this is going to be one of those those hurricanes that finds itself in the record books.
So heading back to Florida, what is their biggest challenge moving forward? What what do you do now at this point? I mean, it, it, it's the beginning stage of a cleanup. I mean, when you have entire marinas that have been, um, you know, dry docked because they were carried by storm surge, uh, you need to get those boats out of the way. You need to get houses rebuilt. You need to get in contact with people. We've seen passing on the roadway uh, uh, the National Guard. We've seen uh, police escorts for trucks carrying water to try and simply get that to people uh, who are in the dark right now. So this is going to be a very slow progress when it comes to cleanup and communication. There are Wi-Fi towers that are being installed to try and boost some of that. But given so much of the state is still inaccessible, um, you know, it really is, you know, less than baby steps to try and move forward with this. There was warning. Some people didn't heed that warning. And now the state is trying to deal with the fact that they're that they have to go after people who stay behind and start up a cleanup. Normally, when there's a hurricane or a tropical storm, you go inland. But this like went, like you said, right across the panhandle. Where do people go? Where have they gone? Well, I mean, look, it's hard to get anywhere in Florida because it's a low-lying state. Most of the state is at or around sea level, so high ground doesn't really exist. And, you know, there's a lot of water bodies, uh, you know, pockmarking the entire state. So you try to get to as far away as you can. But when you have a storm that's rolling through... You need to ensure that wherever you got to is going to be safe. There were government facilities. There were religious facilities that allowed people to take shelter. But ultimately, uh, your shelter is only going to do as much as it can. Uh, and if a storm is too strong, that shelter might not be enough. Ultimately, there were hundreds of thousands of people that did seek that advice and moved inland. But we talked to families today who said that they knew that they knew people, neighbors, uh, that had, that had uh, perished in this storm because they decided to ride it out either because they wanted to, they didn't think it was going to be strong, or they didn't have the means to. That really shows that there, um, there is an economic problem when it comes to how people are able to respond to these kinds of storms. Reggie Cicchini with us from Global News. Watch Global tonight for more on all of this. Stay safe, Reggie. Thanks again so much for the time. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, With Hurricane Ian taking place, the annexation of four regions in the Ukraine, uh, and a pipeline uh, from Russia full of holes. Uh, Boy, don't you wish that Canada was self-sufficient like Europe wishes it was Uh, and now we see I could not believe this and let this resonate with you for a second the gas prices in Vancouver are currently the highest gas prices anywhere in North America think about that way to go Vancouver good for you the highest prices in all of North America because of tax, largely. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, President Canadian uh, for Afford- uh, Canadians for Affordable Energy and a former Liberal MP with us now. Dan, what are your thoughts on uh, this this great uh, title that Vancouver now owns of having the highest gas prices <laughs> in North America? Well, it couldn't happen to a better city, right? <laughs> you want to go and how much of that is and how much of how much of that is tax? Because there's not there's also a municipal tax. I understand. Yeah, there's municipal tax, there's a transit tax. It, 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 look, we pay about 39, 38 cents a litre here in Ontario. They pay 73. Now, wow. you know, you got to say, well, if you keep voting for this stuff, I mean, sooner or later you bang your head in the wall, you'll realize it's not the smartest thing to do. But that's what they want. And they have councillors that they consistently vote for who are always about climate and always about green and all this other nonsense. But at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, I... I 
what can I say? I, I predict the prices for your, your colleagues out there at CKNW. They usually have it first. And uh, I saw this coming about a week and a half ago, informed some of my some of your colleagues there, and uh, sure enough, uh, predictions have been spot on. I note that, uh, uh, while they say an energy analyst on things like CBC, they refuse to say it's Dan McTague because, of course, they probably don't like the message that goes with it, which is, you caused this, folks. This is all on you. And uh, your woke policies have a lot to do uh, with why you have prices today that most cannot afford. So uh, does this spread across the country? Uh, obviously not as bad as, uh, as Vancouver or British Columbia, but do these prices go across the country? We've seen rises everywhere. No, uh, they go only uh, as far really as uh, the Ontario border or, if you will, Thunder Bay. Um, there's a problem, of course. We follow the U.S. markets very closely, and there's three markets that are relevant for Canada in the far west, Pacific Northwest. Uh, there's a market out of uh, Washington State for the rest of the prairies, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and all the central part of BC, except for Vancouver and Vancouver Island. It's the Chicago spot market. And then for Ontario, Quebec and the Maritimes, it's the uh, right, right. New York Harbor price. So, look, it, it has a lot to do with uh, a number of circumstances. Uh, refineries are going through maintenance. There's some shortages of certain types of ethanol. But all this is because California and those regions have boutique gasoline. As for Vancouver itself, it could have helped itself. And I know that a lot of folks out there don't like this, but I, I've, been, I've been banging this drum for six or seven years. If you block a pipeline that gets gasoline from Edmonton down to Vancouver, you create a shortage. And that's exactly yeah. what they've done. This is a provincial government that said no to the Trans Mountain expansion. This is a government that chased away an investor uh, you know, in, in, uh, in, in the pipeline builder. Uh, such that the federal government had to take over. Why? Because the federal government was going to be sued badly. Uh, it had committed, it had given its stamp of approval, and it uh, consistently saw political games being played to block the pipeline. So, you know, uh, Kinder Morgan was prepared to sue the pants off the Canadian government, so the Canadian government wisely chose to actually own the, pu- the pipeline to get it built. It's still not built. It's still the same problem. Again, people vote for these kind of characters and even though they can't be seen right now, because none of them want to talk about the fact that they, they, they own this $2.42 leader, uh, the reality is that uh, their policies have failed Canadians miserably, and they're likely to do it to the rest of the country, including Trudeau's tripling or 3.4 time increase of the carbon tax and the new clean fuel standard, which is a second carbon tax, probably a year and a half now, add another 20 cents a liter on top of the 40 you're going to be paying. So, uh, I've, and I've asked you this a million times, is yep. there more interest in us becoming energy self-sufficient? Why are we not energy self-sufficient? <laughs> like like Europe wishes it was right now. Yeah, well, listen, Europe uh, was rebuffed by this Canadian government, by Trudeau, who said we'll make hydrogen, like big whoop-de-doo. Instead, uh, I see Gerhard, uh, the uh, Chancellor Schultz went down, to, uh, went down to Mexico today and signed an LNG deal. He's going to get gas from a, you know, from Mexico, but he's not going to get it from Canada because Canadians uh, have got this, you know, <laughs> head in the sand attitude that uh, somehow they're bad. But the rest of the world can produce as much as they want and try to, you know, come to the rescue of Europeans. It's absolutely disgusting beyond making my blood boil. Every Canadian out there who uh, tends to take for granted, the, you know, our, our hospitals, our infrastructure, which is paid for by oil and gas revenues, whether you like it or not, because it's $25 billion a year. Every Canadian should be asking why their federal liberal and NDP uh, members of parliament have been so quick to kill something that the world desperately needs to avoid the problems Mm. that we're seeing, not just in Europe, 
but also diminution of our standard of living, our, our ability to afford to make ends meet. And by that, Scott, very simple. It takes over 137 and a half pennies today by U.S. dollar. That's increasing the amount of inflation for everything you're buying. So, you know, if your listeners don't want to pay attention to this and they think it's cool to vote for people who want to, you know, to undermine our number one export and the thing that the world desperately wants and to avoid an energy crisis that's giving way to a global security crisis, then by all means, continue to bury your heads in the sand. But you ought to be ashamed of yourselves at the end of the day. Dan, what do you say to those that say, oh, this is just temporary? There's no business case here that this is, you know, five years from now, this will all be different. Well, I don't know what kind of weed they're smoking, but at the end of the day, if you believe that, then uh, look around you. Europe is about to face a crisis of which it has never seen. German inflation is higher than at any point in 19, since 1951. It will not have any opportunity, as will most of those nations, the ability to make ends meet. People are going to get very cold. Uh, manufacturing is in big trouble. It's likely to lead to a significant uh, recession in that region, in that part of the world. And you know what, Scott, it's not over. This is going to happen again in 23 and 24 and 25. This didn't work. This experiment with spending trillions of dollars and tut-tutting people believing that, oh, you can have a carbon tax, it'll stop hurricanes. What a what a crock. Honest to God, are people that thick? Uh, you know, the, the idea that somehow uh, these countries are going to pull out of it is uh, anytime soon is, uh, is delusional. Perhaps those who are making those decisions and making those kind of comments ought to disclose once and for all who's paying them, because uh, no sane person and no scientist would back up those kind of claims. So, uh, obviously, the Nord Stream pipeline, which Russia supplied or did supply gas to Europe, it had been shut down. Uh, they were building a second. That's been shut down. Uh, there's holes because there's residue coming out of there. But how do these explosions and just this whole situation, which nobody knows even what happened, how is yeah. that going to affect? Uh, considering the pipeline was already shut off, does that add to all of this? Well, Nord Stream 1 was partially shut off. Uh, it was still producing a little bit, but uh, until we had to deal with the... Uh, uh, with the motors, uh, sorry, the uh, <laughs> loss for the word there, uh, for the uh, turbines. Uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, is working, but the problem is that Germany is not willing to buy any of its products. Now they're getting nothing, zero. Uh, I don't know how Europe's going to do it unless they burn more coal than any point in their history, which is likely what's going to happen. It's going to send natural gas prices through the roof because uh, those markets, uh, what Russia's doing right now is just selling it back to India, selling it back to China, selling it back to South Korea, and whatever they have left over, they're just burning it off. Uh, you know, so you get the methane going in the air. Not a very bright thing to do, but that's that's how they plan to do things. And next week, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, OPEC's going to align itself with uh, Russia and cut back uh, half a million barrels or more of oil a day. Watch energy prices take off. So you have a real physical market where things are really bad. Supply is very short for mm. diesel, gasoline, propane, etc. And now, of course, you have OPEC saying, your markets in North America, your obsession with recession among people who shouldn't be in this marketplace, uh, you know, pushing down the price of oil below 80 bucks a barrel today. That's just, uh, you know, that's just red meat for uh, oil producers in that part of the world, basically saying, if you don't want our product and you think so little of it, then you got less of it. And at the same time, Scott, I got to cut you off there, Dan, uh, quickly. yeah, SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, uh, ends. And so watch what happens to oil. We're in big trouble. 
bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University. Uh, Russia has uh, officially announced they have annexed four regions of Ukraine in somewhat of a formal uh, ceremony, I guess, or, or announcement uh, involving uh, Putin. To talk more about all of this, what this means moving forward, what's the next shoe to drop, Elliot Tepper with us now. Elliot, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you, Scott. Same to you. So I'm watching bits and pieces of this today, and I, I, I was sort of on the air, so I couldn't catch it all. But boy, um, I, I guess the idea is for all of Putin's people who are behind him to look very stern. I'm not sure if it was a, a face of stern, a sternness or scare um, but, or fright, perhaps. But what is going on, this announcement, and, and what will be the fallout of this? All right. Well, I think we had, need to step back just a quarter step and say, and here's the big takeaway from our conversation today, is that we have now entered phase three of this ongoing war, and mm. it is a war. Phase one, of course, was the one-week war, which was anticipated. They were going to come in. Russia was going to come in from three sides, quickly eliminate uh, the state of Ukraine, put in a puppet government, reintegrated into or integrated into Mother Russia. Didn't work, as we know. Phase two was, well, that isn't our goal. Our goal actually is to defend our Russian ethnic uh, uh, allies, our, our, our people, our ethnic Russians inside the Donbass to, to save them from the neo-Nazis, meaning the Ukrainians. That was working pretty well, but now isn't. As we well know, the counter-strike by Ukraine has really swept away the possibility of the Russians taking over all the Donbass. And in fact, uh, as of today, that, uh, that strike forward in the northeast of the country is continuing, and there's a big swath of uh, land, but also a lot of Russian troops are about to be surrounded there. What we're seeing now is really the announcement of phase three. What What is Mr. Putin going to do in the fact that his two phases didn't work? Uh, he wasn't going to sit down and negotiate. What we are seeing is it's just something extraordinary, Scott. Uh, we are now seeing that Russia is mobilizing to go to war, not a not a expeditionary force, well armed, which failed, and which was a, a you know just an exercise. This is this is an announcement by Mr. Putin that Russia is going to war, calling up reserves. The, the cap on the reserves was uh, supposed to be you know three hundred thousand of those who have actively served. That's not true. It can be up to a million. Then came those referenda as part of that. That's a big part of the strategy. Now we. Russian territory has been expanded officially into Ukraine, even though they don't actually control some of what they are saying as of this afternoon now as Russian territory, which means those conscripts which are being uh, pulled unwillingly into this war can now officially leave the Russian territory. They, they can enter the new Russian territory. And it also means that the, the um, nuclear strategy of Russia the criteria can now be met. Uh, they will not use nuclear weapons unless there's an existential threat, Scott, to the to the territory of Russia. And now we have an expanded territory of Russia. So we are into a very serious new phase as of today. So uh, we now have we now own this area. So if you cross into it, you are now invading our territory as opposed to you defend helping Ukraine defend theirs. What about uh, Ukraine um, now wanting to be a part of NATO? How does this because this is almost hit for tat, is it not? That's a good catch there because that was just announced a half hour after 
but let's let's put the frame around this. We're now going to see ripple effects from the inauguration of phase three. The ripple effects are numerous. One of them is uh, the extraordinary announcement one half hour, one half hour after the formal announcement by Mr. Putin that this is now all Russian territory, uh, there is a response. And the response is by the uh, incredible leader of Ukraine, this, this person who's now being compared to Churchill, has come out and said, de facto, we have been members of NATO all along. Keeping in mind earlier, they were quite willing, apparently, to sign a pledge. We will never join NATO, although we will join the EU, if Russia backs off. Those days are gone. Uh, Mr. Zelensky, President Zelensky, has said we cannot negotiate anymore uh, at all, any kind of a peace deal with this president, only with the next president. And we now want to go from de facto membership in NATO to formal membership, expedited, as has been the case for both Sweden and Finland, extraordinary ripple effects already of the Russian invasion. But this brings it home to Ukraine. So uh, this new territory now claimed four regions by Russia, theoretically their story, that is Russia, then everything the other side of that now becomes NATO. Is that the new line in the sand or is the original border? Well, uh, we have to back up a bit uh, because, in fact, we don't know NATO's response. Uh, mm. You were asking the next steps. I think a few next steps are Will Ukraine now fire into those areas uh, that are claimed as Russian territory? The U.S. has made a plain right from the very beginning that we are not going to go, go into World War III. We are not going to directly attack Russia, but we will increasingly supply the means for Ukraine to defend themselves. Uh, and that has gotten uh, more and more and more equipment coming in, including a bit from Canada, a lot from Europe. But the uh, question now is, if if the prohibition has been you can use our equipment that we're giving you, but not to directly attack Russia. Will Ukraine now attack those territories which they consider and the whole world still considers, apart from Russia, to be Ukrainian? And I think that's the next, one of the next things to watch. Uh, in the midst of all of this, the Nord Stream pipeline, which there's been four explosions, um, who did this? Will we ever fi find out? It just seems odd to me. It sounds obviously sabotage. Uh, the world's blaming or some of the world blaming Russia for this. Why would Russia blow up its own pipeline when it can just shut the tap on and off? Okay, the uh, this is at the moment murky. It very quickly was concluded by all the everybody who counts, that yes, this was sabotage. It was not some kind of accident uh, because it was in two places, then it was in three places, and all the states involved have said this was sabotage. Nobody has officially blamed Russia, but the consensus is forming now that, um, yes, it was probably Russia, although they said, why would we blow up our own pipeline? And the answer to that is it's just one further step in saying, uh, Europe is now going to freeze in the dark, in the cold, in the winter. Uh, there will be even less possibility of getting energy supplies from Russia directly to Europe, which was still continuing, which was continuing. They're coming through that pipeline. They might have to go through the existing pipelines on land. This was under the sea. And that means crossing Ukrainian territory. And the Ukrainians are saying, well, if you want to do that, you have to pay us the transit rights. So it's gotten confusing. But uh, uh, the possibility exists now that 
that pipeline is permanently offline, but nobody wants in Europe to be dependent on Russia anymore. Uh, wow, um, what a bizarre turn of events. Does this mean, uh, if Russia, in fact, did do this, does this mean they don't need Europe as a customer for their for their uh, uh, their gas? They can sell it, they can unload it elsewhere. Well, they, they continue to sell it to Europe. But yes, China and India are saying, we'll take everything you can send us at a discount uh, mm. in perpetuity. So they are really saying uh, Europe is being forced to help fund the war machine of Russia, uh, but that's now a counter of that. EU is saying we want to cap the price we'll pay. We'll cut your income. We'll take your stuff, but you, uh, you'll, you won't get a lot of money for it or full, full price. Uh, but any country that has energy to sell will always find a buyer. But the whole notion that Russia is a reliable partner has been destroyed for everybody. So Putin has annexed these regions, uh, has done that, what he says, formally and such. We've heard the reaction, possibilities of, of NATO and such. Where do we go from here? How does What happens tomorrow, the next day, the day after that? The things to watch for, I think, we've already mentioned, uh, what's the U.S. reaction going to be to using equipment <laughs> on those territories? But also, what is NATO going to say? Until now, the, the strategy has been, well, we won't really take in Ukraine, Russia really should back off. There's no threat to them from NATO because, you know, there's no threat that for years and years and years, uh, there, there will be no possibility of Ukraine coming into NATO. Now that's changed. We also have to point out the big pushback within Russia for the very first time. All of this, um, all of these referendums are meant to allow the conscripts to go fight in Ukraine and they are now conscripting so Russia is now actually, and this is the big takeaway, Russia, Russia is mobilizing to go to war. The pushback inside Russia has been, well, until now, the Russian heartland, the ethnic Russian heartland, has been pretty well immune, and they were cut off from this war. A lot of the troops were coming from Chechnya and Dagestan, minority areas far away. The war has been brought home inside the heartland of Russia now. That's one of the ripple effects that we're seeing. And we're seeing a lot of the pushback from that, where now up to 200,000 are, are fleeing the country and mm -hmm. seeing those long, long lines, uh, Scott, of people going into Georgia where they can go without a uh, visa. But now Russia is going to set up a recruitment center at that border. Yeah. And there's a rumor saying, well, if you're conscription age, we're not even going to allow you out of the country. Oh, no, we won't do that. But the um, amount of pressure that's being put now... Uh, on the Putin regime inside Russia as a ripple effect of their mobilization strategy, that's playing out in front of us as well. That's fascinating because for the longest time, many thought once sanctions and such were ordered that the Russian people would rebel, but they seem to support Putin. Do you think this is a turning point? And we, we were saying this last week, once they ordered up the 300,000 troops, is this, and, and now with the annexation pipeline, is this very much a turning point for the Russian people as well? I've only got a few seconds. Yes, apparently it is because we've seen them voting with their feet. Yeah. And literally uh, bicycling 200 miles to, to get out. Uh, it is a turning point because for the first time, uh, there's significant pushback because they didn't feel the war in the Russian heartland, and now they do. And that is another ripple effect that Mr. Putin has to deal with.
Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University. Russia officially announcing it is annexed four regions of Ukraine, and now we wait for the other shoe to drop. Always a pleasure, Elliot. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Oh, thank you, Scott. Same to you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We talked about this at great length during the global pandemic, and many hope that once the global pandemic had subsided, which it seems to have, uh, that we would move on and have some really constructive conversation in uh, and, and have a, an honest conversation on what is happening with the Canadian healthcare system and what we need to do to fix it, which basically is not just the same band-aids that we've been uh, applying for the last 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years or what have you. Uh, and it's trying to find a balance that keeps everybody happy. We have acknowledged that we have a, a need, uh, or sorry, we have some flaws, some weak links in the chain, and we need to fix these. But a lot of people don't want to change the way we do this so what's the solution and and obviously without bringing the provinces and the feds together we're not going to get anywhere it starts there but moving forward how do you find the balance let's bring in dr sean cleary president of the canadian association of general surgeons and is with us now doctor thank you for the time i hope you're doing well i am thank you scott hope you are as well so, yes, thanks so much. We hear so much about our healthcare system and the holes in it. Obviously, the exhausted healthcare staff that has been saving our, our lives through this global pandemic and such. Now the call for, uh, I think we finally realize we can't just keep putting band-aids on this. How do we move forward and, and make adjustments when there's so many that don't want change? What is the solution moving forward? Well, uh, it's a great question, and obviously a, a multi-layered one. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. Nothing made that more clear than the pandemic. And, you know, change has to come from all levels. It has to come from the people of Ontario and the people of Canada expecting different from their health care system. The solutions have to come from within the system itself, the people on the ground level the people working in the front lines, they, you know, they have to um, be able to come up with the solutions and be empowered to make the changes. And then ultimately, the administrators and politicians have to be able to be willing to listen to those to that input, be able to willing to listen to the constituents as well as the healthcare providers to say, what do we need to do to make the system more efficient? Because you're right, there, there are no more band-aids that, that can hold it together. We have to do things in a responsible way. We don't have an unending budget uh, for these things, but we do provide exceptional care in Canada for our patients. And how can we continue to do that in a more seamless way? And we want to point that out. This isn't about the great people that work in the in the healthcare industry. But when this template was set up, the government, federal government paid half, 50%, and the provinces paid half. That's not the case anymore. The, the provinces, are, sorry, the feds only pay about 22%. So we can't run the same uh, template plate on uh, you, you know with a different set of criteria here so are we having the is it possible to have a, a discussion at least at a federal level to get us started and some sort of consistency throughout the system you know the the challenge is that canada is diverse and we uh, we see different challenges in different provinces obviously the the challenges in pei are not going to be the same as those right. in alberta british columbia and ontario so we need the ability to enact to a certain extent local solutions, but we need to have um, 
more widespread and universal, basically standards and acceptances. Now, the Canada Health Act set out some very broad things like portability and accessibility. I mean, those are very sort of uh, sort of general terms that people have a hard time defining. But we really need to continue to aspire to deliver the, the world-class care that we have in our country, um, but really do that in a way that responds. So what works in Northern Ontario may not work right. in Toronto. It may not work in Etobicoke, but we need to sort of be able to look for community-driven care that does this. It also means that we need to break down some of the silos that exist in our in our system. We've seen various iterations of this, like LINs and healthcare networks and so forth, and that and that's that's fine. But what we really need to do is allow our uh, our clinicians, our nurses, and our uh, allied health providers to work more collaboratively, uh, to work uh, more cohesively, and to try and work within the system that we have and within the resources that we're given. Uh, obviously, as soon as you say uh, private, it, it seems that everything explodes. Uh, it's either private or it's public, and there is no middle ground, even though we're already operating in a system where we have a combination of both. People think when you mention private, it means i got to get my credit card to, to, you know, to get into a, an emergency room or what have you. Can you somehow explain to Canadians that you know, adding a, a private element to it is more about the procedure than it is the billing or you getting out your credit card. Right. And so I think what the, you know, what the Canada Health Act clearly uh, limits is, is make sure that, that care is accessible and, uh, and that it's comprehensive and that it's available and portable. And so, you know, it, it didn't define the, how the care is delivered. And so, again, private pay does not necessarily have all of those negative connotations of pulling out your credit card or people jumping but we have various areas where public services are delivered by private entities. Again, our hospitals, for the most part, are, are nonprofit, which is which is the way in which things are structured. But there are abilities for private entities to deliver public care. We have the Shouldice Hospital in Toronto that's been, you know, predates healthcare, but no one is, you know, everyone acknowledges that they're probably the best hernia uh, hospital in uh, in North America, if mm. not the world. So there are there doesn't it doesn't have to come with all of the evils as long as it uh, as long as it's uh, managed and we adhere to sort of the principles of our healthcare system and that is that it is accessible uh, to all. We certainly do that with highways. We do that with uh, other areas of public infrastructure, uh, enabling you know private uh, private entities to participate in the delivery of that care. Uh, but certainly, you know, it doesn't have to come with all of the evils. Yeah, and it just seems to be a discussion we're having on the extremes, and, and, and there's no mixed bag solution here. Are you confident we can solve this or that we're at least talking about it, moving in the right direction? I mean, this is not just going to be lip service after two and a half years, is it? Well, no, I think, you know, you look at whenever there's a crisis, it's an opportunity. Uh, and I think that we, we certainly have seen that our healthcare system was running on the edge. It was running at kind of 99% capacity before the pandemic. And our ability to tolerate stresses like the pandemic really showed uh, that we need more resiliency in our system. We need more flexibility. And so I think it's a tremendous lost opportunity if we don't take advantage of this, if we don't take advantage of the opportunities learned. We need to change how our workforce is structured. We need to make it uh, more flexible. We need to make those investments in long-term care and not just building uh, nursing homes, but robust health care centers so that our seniors can 
uh, live in, in dignity and, and in good health with, with ex, receiving excellent care. We need to offload our hospitals so that they can be doing uh, the procedures and looking after the extremely ill that they're designed to do. And so really, we, I think hopefully our politicians are not going to revert to the usual four-year cycle of decision-making and really look at this as an opportunity to bring transformative care into, into our Canadian health care system. Dr. Sean Cleary with us, president of the Canadian Association of General Surgeons. How we move forward. What have we learned from a global pandemic that can help our health care system? Band-Aids just aren't enough anymore. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Today, the second edition of the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, interesting talking to the Vice President of Leger earlier on today, and over 70% of Canadians acknowledging uh, truth and reconciliation and what it is standing for. Where Canadians start to differ is the solutions and the progress moving forward, as many do within the Indigenous community uh, as well. But it's amazing that uh, right across the country, and it really doesn't matter what the demographic is, it's roughly the same, just over 70% of uh, Canadians uh, now aware and acknowledging uh, Truth and Reconciliation Day and, and what has gone on in the past. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Liam Midzane Gobin, Settler Scholar and Assistant Professor of Political Science at Brock University and with, us, and with us now. Liam, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thanks. It's great to be with you and I hope you're doing well today, too. So far, so good. Your thoughts on the second edition of this National Day of Truth and Reconciliation? It's been really interesting. It's, on the one hand, really nice to not have the headlines be uh, about our prime minister's vacation on today. But, um, you know, like, so in that respect, it's a good change. And and I was watching some of the coverage earlier today, and there's a lot of focus on truth-telling and hearing and learning. And I think that that's all really important. And it's really wonderful to see the way that the day um, has really focused on that. Uh, as as a day of remembrance rather than necessarily celebration. Um, the the numbers that you just pointed out, about 70% of Canadians uh, recognizing this as an important task, uh, I think that 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 could bode well for the future. And I really hope that that we can kind of take uh, take that and, and and run with it to agree to 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 really you know achieve some some lasting change. Many, and again, obviously, this is a very complex issue. Many are saying there, you know, there is great progress. Others saying there's not progress, uh, enough progress. It's not happening uh, fast enough. How do you define what progress is? Does that mean different things to different people? Obviously. I think I think just like you said, it, it definitely does mean different things to different people. Um, I think when we start talking about uh, truth-telling, and especially when we start talking about reconciliation, um, what we need to to really make sure we're doing is centering Indigenous voices in that conversation. And um, I think, you know, like when we start talking about what progress looks like or what, what meaningful change looks like, uh, I think that's when we really need to start looking to those Indigenous leaders who have done the work of defining it for us. Um, you know, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry Report really offered some concrete solutions. Uh, the TRC report offered concrete solutions. Um, there are a lot of visions out there for, for what uh, a reconciled Canada or a, a decolonized Canada could look like. Uh, and, you know, I think if we start looking towards that, then then I, I, I personally think that that's who we should be listening to. Uh, obviously, we we're just talking about how now this is more recognized, more people are aware. Uh, how should non-Indigenous Canadians view this day? 
what is their job? Because, you know, I remember even in the first one and even after the uh, uh, discovery of, of uh, those, the horrific discovery under the Kamloops residential school of all those kids' bodies, there was a tremendous amount of guilt. There's a tremendous amount, oh, my God, I can't believe this has happened. I can't believe I didn't pay more attention to this as Canadians. Um, but I think we're so, slowly starting to learn all we have to do is listen. All we have to do is pay attention and listen to the stories that they're telling us and acknowledge them. That's the start. Yeah, so I think that is definitely the start. And I think that that is part of why it's so important that we have today. Um, you know, it's it's unfortunate that only one province and two territories have it as a statutory holiday, as a, as a day off. But I think when the conversation becomes about whether or not we, we have it off, whether or not we're going to get the day off, um, what we really end up missing is what we're supposed to do with that time. And like you said, it is for non-Indigenous Canadians, a lot of listening, a lot of learning. Um, this is the day that, that we have to do that. It's, it's in some respects, the kind of day we set aside. But what is really important there is that we not just learn for learning's sake. It's not just to, to learn about what happened, but about how we really kind of make some concrete changes going forward. What we ask of our politicians, because reconciliation, while it takes a, a number of individuals to to, to make that change, it can't only be an individual effort. It's it's ultimately our government's responsibility too. And so um, individually, we can listen, we can learn, we should do that. Um, but collectively as a society, we really need to hold our government to account. You talked about the stat holiday, lots of debate, whether it should or it shouldn't. Um, you know, let me be on record as anytime we can get a stat holiday, I'm going to take it. I don't care what the uh, situation is, obviously, with this. But you can have the same debate, no pun intended, with Remembrance Day, the Queen's funeral and such. And I was telling the story of just earlier on in my lunch hour, I ran over to watch the start of my kids' football game and noticed the am- amount of kids that were wearing orange. And before they started the game, they did a little, uh, y- you know, acknowledgement of the territory that they were standing on everybody rose uh and, and before the football game started they had two kids come out and play the national anthem after they acknowledged the territorial uh, the territory that we were standing on so you know i can see the argument of having the day off who wouldn't want that but again uh they're in school they're acknowledging it is that not of value I think it absolutely is. And I think if we're going to take the approach of uh, using the time that we're at work today or the time that especially our kids are in school uh, today to to do a lot of that learning, that's really important and that's really valuable. And I think that, you know, that can in some cases be even more effective than if we just see it as a long weekend. Um, really, though, what your story brought me to thinking is like this is... National Truth and Reconciliation Day is a day where we have set aside time to reflect on what we're going to do the 364 other days. And you know what? That doesn't mean that um, today is necessarily a day off, but it's a chance for us to really wrap our head around that and and make some choices about you know what what we're going to do as a society. And so um, it's about today, but it's also about you know the collection of every other day that uh, that occurs throughout the year too. Why do you think Canadians are have changed their tune on this? Um, for me, it, it's just been acknowledgement of Canadian history, which uh, whether I was too ignorant or wasn't taught. I mean, I don't want to blame it all on the school system. It's all there. We could have all gone and learned it. How, how do you, uh, you know, and obviously the discovery of the residential schools, as we mentioned and such, but is this about not only, and it is for me, as I'm saying, um, it's about learning Canadian history and the other, the other avenue, the other angle of Canadian history uh, that we didn't acknowledge. Yeah, and I think that's it. 
Um, you know, like you're right that this history has been there. And while that's true, I mean, most of us aren't trained to be out there teaching it or learning about mm. where to be looking for it. And when that history gets hidden uh, and, you know, is not presented to everybody, it isn't there for you to see. And so I think it's important that we've had the kinds of conversations that we have had. Um, and I think it is, you know, about us continuing to learn going forward. And you're right that that historical angle is definitely there. Where I think we need to take today, though, is learning, but also questioning, like, what are we going to do to make change? Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people have made the argument that our, you know, child and welf welfare system today is mm. still reflective of all, all of the principles that were behind the residential school system, right? Taking kids out of family, out of community, um, not letting them learn their language. And so if that's the case, are we going to be okay with that today when we now say we weren't okay with it before? And, you know, if we're not, who are we going to ask to make that change? What are we going to demand of our governments? Um, you know, what changes are we going to look for? I think those are the kinds of things that individual Canadians can have a real impact on. Because if we all go to our governments, if we all go to our MPs or our MPPs and demand that, you know, they not continue to support this, they're going to get that message and they're going to respond to public pressure. And so, um, you know, I, I totally agree. Today is a great day to learn our history. But then I think the next question is, what are we going to do about that? Once we've learned that history, you know, what little changes can we make to really hold our governments to account for what they continue to do today? Liam Midzane Gobin, Settler Scholar and Assistant Professor of Political Science, Brock University, talking about this National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Liam, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Interesting stat coming out of Leger today. And uh, it said that well over 70%, and you think about this, it's not often that three-quarters of the country agrees on anything. Uh, and usually they, maybe they can agree on something, but the solution or, or what have you moving forward is where they have difficulty. But over 70% of, uh, and almost 75% of Canadians understand, acknowledge, are aware of Truth and Reconciliation uh, Day and what it is all about and what it means. What are your thoughts that uh, Canadians have now, whether it's been the discovery of the, the uh, bodies or remains under the residential schools, uh, whether it's the actual Truth and Reconciliation Act of, of seven years ago, whether it's the day today being declared, are, are you surprised that Canadians are starting to embrace this the way they are? Uh, okay, so let me ask you a follow-up. Did they, did they also ask, 75% are uh, embracing this. Did 75% also say they want their taxes to go up to pay for these kind of things? Because Absolutely I, well, not. That's, that's, where, that's where everything changes. It's much like climate change. You know, the majority of the Canadians uh, agree there's issues with the planet. What they disagree on are the solutions moving forward. Right. And I think that, you know, I don't think we are an unkind or uncaring people. At the same time, I also think an awful lot of people, an awful lot of people would say, fine, but I don't trust the government. And I don't mean a particular branch, either conservative, liberal, NDP, but I just, I don't trust the government is going to, if they jack up our taxes to go towards this, are going to do the right thing and make yeah. anything better. That's the problem I have is that it's great to have a day where everybody wears an orange shirt and thinks about it and says they feel badly about what happened. But that's really, ultimately, 
pretty meaningless, isn't it? I mean, it's something, I suppose. But what are we? What's the real solution? Because I don't think that people on indigenous reserves who don't have water are saying, "Well, as long as you wear an orange shirt, we're all good." Uh, I agree with that one hundred percent. There's nothing really that I disagree there, and you know, obviously, uh, issues whether it's clean water on reserves or, or or whatever the social issues are or what have you that they need aid with, um, you know, obviously that is something we have to continue to do more work towards. That being said, when you have this kind of interest, it starts with interest. It starts with people being aware of it, and then these hopefully solutions uh, start to come forward. I mean, considering. Where we've been for the last hundred and some odd years, the fact that we've come the, the you know as far as we have in the last five or seven or so, um, again, more work to be done. But I think that's yeah. also an accomplishment. Well, I, I don't disagree. Uh, I would so I would say two things. One is I think you're going to have a lot of work to do for most of those seventy five percent to buy into the fact that any government is going to fix this. And the second thing is. And this is not casting blame. This is just reality. I think we're also going to have to somehow get a little more clarity, or not even clarity, that's not the right word, um, alignment among some of the indigenous groups yep, about how we want things done. Give an example. Yep. Uh, pipelines. There are yep. some indigenous groups that can't wait to get pipelines because they see the financial benefit to them. There Wait a sec. Let me correct you there. Let me correct you there because let's use the uh, the the gasoline pipeline. The majority of the indigenous communities along the pipeline all accepted. It was about uh, five or so hereditary chiefs that said no. So well, this does bring a great deal of money into. Yes, I agree one hundred percent. That's so then what does it, yeah. so even if you trust that the government is going to solve it, who is the government supposed to follow or listen to if you have a disagreement? Because either way it looks like you are not listening. And the loudest, not just with Indigenous people, with any particular group, the loudest complainers are always the ones that get the most airtime. And so if the those, even if it's a minority who say, no, we don't want this, get all the attention, it sounds like you're sticking it to them once again. And so I, I think there does have to be also a, a better job at alignment among many of the people who have been affected if we are going to say, as you, as this survey seems to be, that many Canadians now want to do the right thing, okay, what is the right thing you would like us to do so we can do it and begin moving towards something other than just wearing an orange shirt? Uh, I agree. I'm just, yes, yes, I mean, all of that. I mean, I, I don't disagree with, with that, but, uh, you know, uh, again, I mean, uh, you know, the issue is us understanding. The Indigenous community will figure out its own way of addressing the problem that you just described, and, and we've talked about this many times on the show, especially around the pipeline, where, you know, there's the majority of the Indigenous community that want it, there's some that don't, and, and as you said, the squeaky wheel uh, gets the grease. But those are not issues that the Canadian government going to solve those are issues no. that will be solved within the indigenous community but again um you know I, I think the bigger hurdle is 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 with the government rather than the indigenous community but we'll see as that well, moves it's a forward it's yeah, a yeah. And I, I really think that the people want to help i do i think people want yeah. to help they just i don't think people know, they don't know how, how they are yeah. supposed to do it yeah. So let me ask you this because we only got a, about a minute left. Stat holiday. Should it be a stat holiday or not? Where, you know, Remembrance Day, uh, the Queen's, uh, funeral, all of that, the same sort of discussion. Uh, saw my kids, uh, today, uh, acknowledging it at school. They were all there. Some are wearing orange shirts and such. Should it be a stat holiday or not? How many people, honestly, 
would be wearing orange shirts and talking about this if everybody was at home having a stat holiday as opposed to being in their workplace or in their school. I agree. You're, Although, you know, I will take any reason to get a day off. I will take any yeah, reason to get a day off, but enough. I agree with you 100%. I agree fair 100%. Enough, but every person who's there at school talking about this with their teacher is probably yep. not, I hate to say it, but probably not talking about it at their home. They're watching TV or playing on their computer. I don't think they'd be talking about it if it was a holiday. Uh, so, yeah, it's amazing because I've had some experts say, well, but in Ontario and Quebec, they didn't give it off. And it's like, well, you know, again, I was at the kids' school today, and boy, it was acknowledged. So I think that's where the lessons are learned, just the it's same got, thing. I, as I know you got to run. I know you got to run, but our prime minister took it as a stat holiday last year. And how did that go? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, at least he put down a surfboard for an orange shirt this time out and was available and showed some leadership this year. So I guess we should at least be thankful of that. we saw what happened when you didn't, when you made it a holiday, yeah. we saw yeah. what happened. And he, was he went one, surfing. He was one perfect example of what ends up happening if you make everyone have a holiday. <laughs> That's a great point. Should it be a holiday? Yes, it should. Well, ask the Prime Minister. Great point. Scott Radley, more of this coming up after the 6 o'clock news on the Scott Radley Show. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, have a great time. Thanks for yours. See you, Scott. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Greatly appreciated. Uh, thanks to Tom McKay, Ben Strawn uh, for producing, as well as Will Erskine and in the newsroom, Diana and Dave. Look at that. It's like we're on the CBC. Uh, we thank you so much for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. From Dan, Vancouver now has the highest gas prices in all of North America. Is that a title you can be proud of, though? Stop the selfish wokeness and really help save that planet by giving them cleaner energy. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.